You want to know who killed Laura? Gil did! We all did. And pretty words aren't gonna bring her back, man, so save your prayers. She would've laughed at them anyway. Welcome to another episode of A Damn Fine Podcast, the podcast that's revisiting and reanalyzing the wonderful television show Twin Peaks. I'm Ron Richards, and with me is Tom Merritt. Ron, these hosts are what they seem, unlike owls. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we are here to talk about the third or fourth episode <laughs> as we continue to struggle with the numbering. <laughs> I'm just, I'm finally given in, and I'm just going to call it episode four because I think it episode is the four, fourth you, yeah, yeah. of the episodes. Yes, so you yeah. know. So episode I, four, Twin Peaks. There we go. <laughs> the, the the listings that call it episode three because they don't count the pilot have been outvoted by <laughs> our own episode count as yeah. well as many others. And this episode uh, was awkwardly named for the German airings of the show. Rest in pain. As, yeah. As the, this is the big uh, this is the big funeral episode uh, of the funeral of Laura Palmer. So very somber, very sad, very moody. A lot of moody music in this episode, right? Well, I mean, yes, uh, that probably sounds funny to people who aren't as familiar with Twin Peaks because they're like, isn't that every episode of True. Twin Peaks? But even even moodier yeah, than you. That was, yeah, even moodier. Um, so this episode aired on April 26, 1990, um, and it was uh, directed by Tina Rathborn. Uh, who was a film director who got called in by Lynch to to do this episode. And this is the first episode not written by Mark Frost or David Lynch. It was written by Harley Payton. And it's notable that it wasn't written by Frost or Lynch, uh, but it was nominated for an Emmy for the Best Writing category. Uh, which, you know, I mean, do you think Frost and Lynch took exception to that? Well, I don't think so because Mark Frost was also nominated for the pilot. Sure. Uh, and, okay, so he had his own. Yeah, He's good. And both of them lost to David E. Kelly, who won for an episode of L.A. Law. So, yeah, easy come, I think easy that go. probably pissed both of them up off more than <laughs> the cross nomination. I suppose, but it's an honor to be nominated, right? Yeah. It is. It's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> and I, I feel like at the end of the, when we wrap up season one, we should take a look at the Emmy, all the awards and all that sort of stuff at the end of the season. But I thought that was interesting that this was a Emmy nominated yeah. episode, not by Mark Frost or David, or, or David Lynch. So. Although they always still give them writing credits as created by. Yes, of uh, course. Which yeah. gets them a little of that glow yeah. as well. A little, a little bit of that, a uh, little bit of that juice. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, big episode in that uh, Laura is put into the ground, uh, but she can't be put into the ground until Albert and his team have their have their have their time with the body. Right, uh, and and uh, this is the um, this is the culmination of. I, I know who killed Laura Palmer, right? Oh, right, the cliffhanger. I'm look at me. We had I'm we had the, the end lead. of the at yeah. the end of the last episode. Cooper said he knew who killed. And at the beginning of this episode, they're like, oh, no, just just come meet me for breakfast. I'll tell you then. Which which I love that he's just like he's got a spring in his step. Right. And he <laughs> and he goes to breakfast. And of course, also, as Cooper's going to breakfast, he runs into Audrey Horn and uh, proceeds to bust her very easily with the note with the Jack with one eye note. By asking oh. her, asking her to write her name down on a piece of paper. Also, yeah. a little too easily, like, uh, just write your name down on this paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess maybe 
she's gullible enough to do that. But I would be like, why? Why? Why do you want to do? Why do now, you want me to do that again? Now here's the thing. So so he he busts Audrey and you know says you got something you want to tell me about and asks her about One Eye Jacks, um, and then proceeds to tell her that her the slant of her handwriting indicates a romantic personality. Yeah, what's that about, Cooper? Right, I'm kind of inappropriate. She's a teenager. <laughs> I mean, let let let's you know, we're not talking about today's Kyle McLaughlin. We're talking about a much younger Kyle McLaughlin, but still, this girl hasn't graduated high school yet. Agent Cooper, inappropriate, inappropriate. <laughs> uh, we do learn about the perfume counter connection, though. Yes, we do. Uh, so we get we get a little bit of that coming together. There were hints dropped about it before, but this is the first time it's really waved in your face. Well, and, and Cooper and Audrey, realizes, well, wait a minute, Ronette Pulaski worked there too. Yeah, and Audrey, conf- yeah, Audrey confirms that Laura worked at the perfume counter, which triggers that connection to Ronette Pulaski. And okay, boom, they're, now they're connected, where previously Laura and Ronette never were connected. Correct. So, so now, so now we're putting that together. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Cooper and. Uh, how how am I why am I blanking on the Truman? receptionist oh uh, no. Lucy Lucy <laughs> why well, couldn't remember Lucy suddenly Lucy's name just fled from me uh, so so Cooper and Lucy show up yep. and uh, and we get the announcement this is the first cheat yes this is the first what I would call the official cheat of I know who killed pa- Laura Palmer. It's someone hidden in my dream, and my dream is a code waiting to be broken. If we break the code, we'll solve the crime. Like, oh well, of course you weren't going to tell me. Well, what's what's interesting is that yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the the I know who killed Laura Palmer was completely a misdirection, and ha- and I remember being so disappointed upon watching this uh, when when it was on because it was a, a huge cop out because basically Cooper retells the dream, and the dream ends with uh, the Laura's cousin who looks just like her. Take note of that. Um, uh, or no, the the man, the 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 little man's there was, cousin, he, right? That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, the little man's cousin, yes. and she doesn't. Uh, she isn't Laura Palmer, but sometimes, but she looks just like her. looks exactly. just like her. Yes, but she, she leans over to Cooper and whispers the name of the killer. And Truman, uh, Sheriff Truman, on the edge of his seat, goes, "Well, what did she say?" And he goes, Who "I don't remember. It? I don't remember." Um, yeah. What he does remember, what he does remember, is he remembers a bunch of details about the dream and pretty much lays out. The whole the whole dream for us, um, you know, with Mike and Bobby, Mike and Bob and and not Mike and Bobby, but Mike. So it was Mike and Bobby. I mean, you even get Truman speaking on behalf of the audience. Exactly. And so Agent Cooper go. No, dispelling, dispelling that theory immediately. Um, but what's interesting, two things about that is his retelling is that one is that the original script actually just called for him to retell it. And uh, the director, Tina Rathborn, was worried that this entire episode was just people talking to each other and there was no actual any good visuals. And so she got uh, permission to use the imagery from the dream again in this episode So that w- in the edit. So that wasn't originally planned for um, because visually but it was just kind of boring to have Cooper retell the dream. Even, even as someone who just watched it. Uh, for the, for the millionth time, right? Yeah. I I still didn't. It didn't bother me. It didn't yeah. stick out as like, oh right, I saw this already. It felt like, oh yeah, this is this is what Cooper's seeing in his mind's eye, and I like that perspective. Uh, also, did it strike you that he says suddenly it was twenty five years later, and you're like, hey, that was this past June twenty sixteen. Oh right, I didn't even put that together. Oh that yeah. Came, oh Tom, I'm depressed now. Um, but what I did catch, which struck me when I watched it, then I went back to to do my my little research to find out. Um, um, Cooper gives more detail to the dream than what we saw in the dream. Hmm. Uh, specifically, the fact that Mike shot Bob to get away from him, 
And that wasn't in the dream sequence last episode. That was actually in the international version ending of the movie. Ah, uh, okay. And so in the process of the do- writing the script and then editing and coming out with the episodes, they just left that tiny bit out. So Cooper actually tells more about the ending of the international version of the pilot in this scene than we saw in last episode. <laughs> Which, albeit unintentionally, is an amazing thing, right? Yeah. It's it's that thing that gives this sense of a wider world where you're like, oh, well, there was more in the dream than I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's how I kind of read it too as well. Um, or there's more of the dream than the, that they showed. Um, but also, they they the, one of the reasons uh, this this episode is was one you know was nominated for the Emmy and, and and remembered so fondly is because it actually introduces you know Jungian anal- analytical psychology into Cooper's character. You know the idea yeah. of analyzing dreams to come to 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 come up with a conclusion, um, and we get a little soliloquy from uh, from Cooper as to why the power of dreams and all that stuff at the beginning of this. It just Which, again, it just it's creating this this mythos of this character of Cooper as this like super FBI agent, even more so. Building on that Tibetan display, yep. uh, but but actually, I think uh, a little more subtle and a little more substantial. Because there was really no connection between Tibet and his his system in the previous episode, this was like you know kind of based on on a sound philosophical tradition. Yeah, and and he does say he does say, but we you know like he talks about the the origin of dreams and where they come from, and he says, but no one knows why we choose the you know why we dream the images we do, and so he yeah. still leaves it open to uh, to uh, interpretation. So. so you get that really substantial element to Cooper's character, and it's one of those moments that. It makes me remember why I love this show so much, uh, because even now you don't see shows go in that direction as often as maybe I would like. And then you have Cooper uh, looking at Hawk, uh, who's going to who's going to track something down and, and turn into Cooper and say, is he a tracker? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I love I loved his. Yeah. Well, so so that, that that's another thing I noted was was Cooper's just continuing fascination with this whole area like he's walked into this wonderland that i don't think he expected and you know hearing the fact that hawk is a tracker got him all excited yeah and then, he's boy like again and then he actually exactly then he actually goes as far as to go to diane to investigate real estate and his pension program because he thinks that he can get he can get a good deal on some uh real estate here in twin peaks so he's already fall he's he's actually gone stockholm syndrome with twin peaks i think he's fallen yeah, in love in with fact, the place when <laughs> he doesn't back up albert uh yeah. and you know they're friends it, it it actually starts to play almost out of character. Like, wait, this is a man who's loyal, you know, trusted and true, and he's taking the side of the locals. Yeah, and, and well, I never got the sense that him and Albert were friends, rather just, you know, Co-workers, and you you know sometimes you you well, I suppose you, yeah yeah but you can you can make excuses for a difficult coworker because you work with them not necessarily he's a you comrade like in arms so yeah yeah I guess a, a fellow yeah. G man but yeah mm. uh, but you know but Cooper's totally going native in just four episodes which I find fascinating yeah so. <laughs> uh, and then of course we get to what you you mentioned uh, earlier is the body being surrendered and and that's the big fight that Cooper ends up backing uh, Truman and backing the Twin Peaks folks in because Albert just wants to keep working on Laura's body looking for evidence right and and meanwhile her funeral's been planned and Doc Hayward and Ben Horn who's acting on behalf of the Palmer family because um, for a moment I was like why is Ben Horn there but then he actually says Leland Palmer couldn't be here and I'm representing the family <laughs> so it still it still was a little uh, yeah. weak for me I because I was thinking the same thing. And I'm, even after he says I'm representing the family, I'm like, well, but why? Because right. you're his boss. Like, I guess Leland was the lawyer, so they probably work very closely. But yeah, yeah, but still, it's still a little. 
But so uh, they 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 want to take uh, her body to the funeral, and Albert's not done yet. And it actually goes to fisticuffs uh, after yeah. Albert uh, Albert insults uh, Sheriff Truman once again with possibly one of the best line deliveries by M- Miguel Ferrer in the entire series, um, as he explains that he's had enough of the small town filled with morons and halfwits and the like. <laughs> Just, and Truman yeah. Truman punches him, and he he deserved it. So <laughs> I and and I still I still think like. Cooper should have backed up his guy. Yeah. Cooper should want more results than he, he never even questions Albert. Well, how far did you get? He just says, listen, Albert, you're handing over the right thing to do. Right. You know, so it's a very moral decision, not a strategic decision. Right. And, and it is interesting. How does it hurt? You know, does it hurt, help or hurt the case? Um, you know, and so then later on, we see Albert back at the sheriff's st- uh, station, the police station, and they go over his report and which I'll give Albert uh, credit he's him and his team did a whose team is now gone which i thought was funny too just albert yeah but um his report is very concise and very specific and gives and answers a lot of questions you know that laura was using cocaine um there were there, there are traces of rope and twine found on her arms and it explains how she was two tied different up. types yeah. yeah two different types and she was tied up and he does the arm motion and cooper then mumbles cooper uh, cooper then mumbles uh, sometimes my arms tied, you know, tied back like from the dream when the, the Laura like cipher in his dream says sometimes I my feel arms like bend I back. know her. But then yeah. sometimes my arms bend back, which yeah. also doesn't make any damn sense. But it's an awesome connection. Does that yeah. mean that the dream Laura is the Laura that goes to the train car and is bad and the real Laura is good? I mean, I guess that's the, the line. But then he also finds a, a letter J in her stomach. Uh, lighting or acid or whatever stomach area. So tying back to the letter that they found under her fingernail. Right. So, so it wasn't yeah. under the fingernail in this case for some reason. Also, uh, we also have claw marks, bites of some kind uh, to which, of course, and, and this is for those who've seen it before, an indication of where we know we're going there. Uh, but then Harry says, so an animal and Albert says, look, it's trying to think. Yeah, I know. The, the continuing... Uh, he hasn't given up, even yeah, after the, the punch. Yeah, the continuing uh, bad relationship between Truman and, and Albert is hysterical. The Truman-Cooper bromance is, uh, is Trump after four days, barely even four days. Uh, and now he's uh, it's trumping his uh, FBI relationships. Yeah. yeah, so who knows? All right, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the love triangle uh, because we get uh, a few scenes. And again, like last episode, and maybe we're just going to realize as we do this show that it's every episode. There are a lot of storylines getting played out here. Uh, And we get a little bit of Ed and Nadine, a little bit more about Norma. And the first is Nadine uh, having the revelation with Ed. And when she looks him in the eyes and says... Love me. It's one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. Well, what even got me is funny, and it's funny because I see as now watching with an analytical analytical eye. Um, you know, they're getting ready to go to the funeral, so all dressed in black, but they're kind of having a moment in their living room. And Norma, you know, is all happy because Ed came back to her last night. Oh and, right! And yeah. I realized I was like, "Oh, oh, they they got a, they got a little action going on last night, Something didn't happened. they?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, Big Ed is kind of you know playing both sides from the middle here. <laughs> now, I didn't realize how big of a hint gets dropped at what's going to happen to Nadine next Me because she starts telling that entire story about high school and watching Norma, and not only that, but right up to the point where he says, "Oh, that's James." And she says, James who? Yep. 
And I'm like, is that the moment? Is that the moment when the, the break, break happened? Yeah, it might be. It might be. Yeah, and, you know, Nadine explaining that she, you know, used to watch because Ed was a big football player, and I guess Norma was a cheerleader, and Nadine was a nobody. So you get a sense of a long history of mm-hmm. these character of these you know characters together, and uh, Nadine wishing that she could, you know, she knew that she and Ed were meant to be, and being jealous of Norma. It's like, oh, as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, it just gets worse and worse. I was going to say, one thing you might be thinking if you're watching Ed and Nadine, and especially if you feel about Nadine the way Ron and I have expressed, you might say, why doesn't Ed just ditch her and go to Norma? Well, we find out in this episode that <laughs> Hank is a character and that Hank is coming back on parole. And in fact, the way Hank's going to keep his parole is working for Norma at the diner. And that Hank is doing three to five for manslaughter. So <laughs> yeah, did three to five for manslaughter and is married and is Norma's husband. Yes. So uh, so the, this love triangle now has become a love square, which is going to get way more complicated down the line. <laughs> so um, and continuing in the triangles, uh, we do check into the uh, to the, the Catherine Martell versus Josie Packard uh, with Pete Martell behind Josie helping her uh, kind of storyline. Uh, as we saw last episode, when, when Josie found the secret bookcase with the two ledgers. Um, at the end of the episode, Josie's, you know, canoodling with Sheriff Truman and she's telling him that she's worried about her life, that she thinks Catherine's out to get her. Um, and she explains about the second ledger, shows Truman the secret bookcase, explains why Pete had it made. And Truman is not surprised by the presence of a secret bookcase whatsoever. No, <laughs> any more than I was in the last episode. Maybe I'm from Twin Peaks because yeah, he's just like, oh, so you have a secret bookcase too. Yeah. We, I mean, we all have one. That yeah. makes perfect sense. So, so she's telling Truman that she's worried that Catherine's going to get her. And meanwhile, in a very late 80s, early 90s uh, plot device, Catherine is eavesdropping on this conversation through the house's intercom system. Also, really? Seriously? <laughs> like, you're having this conversation with Harry and you don't think to look that the large intercom next to you might or might not be on. What's so funny is that, like, I remember those intercom. We had one of those intercom systems in my house. Um, like, my dad put it in. There was one in the kitchen. There was one in each of me and my sister's rooms. And, like, I'm thinking about and it's so dorky and like it's like I mean and that was the thing that, was that likely to happen in your house where you could like just spy on somebody in the other room <laughs> nah, not really I don't think that's I don't think that's the way they work I don't think it's the, what it's supposed to be what it's supposed to be used for but just the fact that they when was the last time you were in a house with an intercom system oh man the last time I was in any house with any kind of intercom <laughs> Was when I lived in Oakland, and we had an intercom to go down to go downstairs if somebody rang the doorbell sure, to find yeah. out who it was, and then it didn't even work. But it was just it, dead. But with it, imagine within the house, that like the house is so yeah, big yeah. that you just no, can't I never, I, I, you know, I didn't have enough. We didn't come from the kind of family that could afford an <laughs> inner house intercom like you, rich Ron Richards well, people. Well, it's, it's not so much of a rich. It's just that my dad, my dad was a geek, and my dad enjoyed you know the tech stuff, and uh, and yeah. I think he just wanted a project to put into the house in 1985. No, my, my dad yeah. loved that stuff too he just never went intercom he he was all about spending money on recording devices like cassette players and stuff oh like true like uh nixon <laughs> yeah yeah maybe he was inspired by that i don't know <laughs> but anyway so um so yeah so Catherine over- overhears this whole conversation and then um confronts pete and basically says i knew what you did next time you want to do it confront me to my face and pete just walks right. away so so now well, Catherine is aware what- There's only one book in the safe because Catherine got to it first. What I love is that she hands the one book to Harry and he's like, this one looks okay. Because obviously he is such an accomplished accountant that he can glance once at a ledger and know that it is totally above board. Right. (laughs) So, oh gosh. Um, All right. Well, then uh, that gets us to the main event of this episode, which is Laura's funeral. 
Oh, see, I thought you were going to say Invitation to Love. <laughs> well, I mean, I could have because the funeral section of the episode does start with Invitation to Love, ironically enough, as uh, Leland Palmer is sitting on his couch getting sed- getting a shot, which I can only assume is getting sedated. Uh, yeah. Yeah, unless he's, yeah. You know, unless he's diabetic and has a nurse attend to him. No, <laughs> no, I think, I, I think this is also another late night, almost 60s era thing, but a yeah. late 90s, like, you know, just, just drug him up because yep. they're, they're upset about their dead daughter. And so while he's getting sedated, he's watching TV and we see uh, Invitation to Love starting and we get our first exposure to the cast of Invitation to Love. We see Chet. And then um, in what I think is also, con- you know, starting the meta commentary of Invitation to Love with um, Twin Peaks is that as they're going through the characters, there's one actress who plays both Emerald and Jade. Yes. And, yeah. and, uh. and then that leads into uh, Leland uh, seeing his niece who's come to visit, uh, Laura's cousin. Uh, well, don't forget about Montana. Oh, right. Invitation yeah. to Love. Very important. But yes, yes, of course, uh, because we get the two we get the two girls on Invitation to Love. We get the guy writing a suicide note, uh, which may be an insight into Leland's state of mind. Yep. And then a Madeline arrives. And I've got to be honest, Ron, in 1991, I did not recognize that that was the actress who played Laura Palmer. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I I'm trying to remember if I picked up on it immediately or not. It is the same actress, Cheryl Lee. Uh, she's wearing a brunette wig with long hair. So maybe it's... And big glasses. And big glasses. And, and the yeah. thing is, like now, Laura Palmer's image is burned into our minds, yeah. right? And even then, they played, they showed her her prom picture at the end of every episode. Yep. But I just hadn't seen her enough, I guess. Yeah, is that, and it's funny because Cheryl Lee wasn't supposed to be on the show again after, after playing Laura Palmer in the pilot. Um, she was a... Uh, she was an actress from the Pacific Northwest. She answered a casting call. Uh, she wasn't any, t- you know, any, big, you know, she wasn't hadn't done any TV work or any work in LA. But uh, Lynch liked her enough that he says, "I'm gonna write you a part and get you back in the show." And so he created the character Madeline, um, who we get introduced here, who other than just saying hello to Leland has no other lines. And they don't really make the connection that she looks like Laura until future episodes when it's Donna and James. We'll talk about that. But um, uh, but I funny how Invitation to Love precedes this. But, but I, I thought that was fascinating. So. <laughs> and then other uh, pre-funeral action is uh, Bobby's dad sitting down and having another ineffectual talk where he just says things and Bobby loses his patience. Um, one thing I noticed was there are palms in the crucifix on the wall behind them. Yep. Is it Palm Sunday? I don't... Th- it might be, because the events... Okay, so it aired in April, which is after Palm Sunday, but I believe yeah. the events of Laura's death are supposed to be in February. Right. Um, which could... It's pretty unlikely that that would be Palm Sunday in February. Okay, so the date of Laura's death is February 24th, 1989. Yeah, okay. and this is within a few days of that. Right, yeah. So Palm Sunday, 1989. I'm going to go real nerdy on this right wow, now. Wow, I like this. I like the commitment to research here. Palm Sunday was, uh, let's see. So Easter was March 26th. Yeah. So, so Palm Sunday's March, whatever, 26 minus 7 is, 16? No, yeah, 19. Yeah. It, so yeah. it was it was March 19. Yeah, it was March 19. So this, it was not Palm Sunday. That would have been cool, though, but... Yeah. All right. So they just put palms in there to decorate it. And then, of course, the beautiful denial of Bobby's mom where they're screaming. Bobby is literally screaming and she walks up and just smiles like, everybody ready to go? Yeah. 
Oh God, I feel bad because I liked Bobby's father, like the, and I remember at the time thinking as I was watching this as a teenager, going, "Oh, his dad's a stuffy Air Force guy, whatever." Looking back on it, that actor is great. His just oh, he's so the, good. The yeah. meter of his dialogue and his just approach to it, and you get the sense of the rebellion that's going on by Bobby and all that sort of stuff. It's just he's I in think, Stargate SG One too, the he? TV yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Uh, he's great. He's excellent. Um, but then also right before the funeral, when Big Ed and Nadine are having their moment, uh, James bikes James's bike pulls up and he comes into the house to tell Ed that he's not going to the funeral. Like a pouty, yeah, I love like that he, he like drives all the way over there, comes into the house just to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Look, you can't make me. <laughs> All right, but so uh, so we go to the funeral and uh, we see the uh, the the Twin Peaks priest uh, given the given the whole service. Everyone's outside, um, and we also get the uh, the spooky wind shot, which becomes along with the swinging uh, traffic light shot, one of the more repeated and emblematic shots. Yeah. I always associate that with Bob. Yeah. Like if it's if it's the wind blowing spookily through the trees, it's Bob. So I I take that now as like oh Bob showed up. I mean, obviously, Bob showed up in many ways, but, you know, Bob's definitely paying attention to the funeral. Yeah. Um, what I thought about the funeral, the, the the interesting things that I noted was was just the the use of the shots of the shoulders up of characters. Mm-hmm. So we got very few crowd shots of the funeral. Um, and what little ones we got were just odd. Like, why was the log lady standing next to the priest? Would she be that at the forefront of this of the funeral? <laughs> yes. She's there. Um, but you know, like we see, we see Bobby, we see, we see Audrey, we see Cooper, but then it, it, the cuts move into a cadence of Cooper cutting to Bobby, cutting back to Cooper, cutting to somebody else, cutting back to Cooper. And you get the sense that, Oh, Cooper's attending this funeral, but he's working. Yeah. He's yeah, definitely he, like trying to see who reacts to what. Exactly. Um, and James shows up and, uh, and Bobby reacts and Cooper notes it, um, which then, uh, leads to Bobby's outburst, outburst at the funeral as he starts screaming at everybody, yelling at everybody that they knew that she was in trouble and nobody did anything about it. Um, yeah, I, I actually love the way that's handled because earlier in the episode, Audrey, I mean, in, in a, an important revelation for other things, Audrey has a spy hole yeah. and you see her spying on Dr. Jacoby talking with Johnny trying to get Johnny calm to go to the funeral. And then, of course, Johnny has an outburst at the funeral. So you're led as a viewer to think, oh, Johnny's going to be disruptive now because that's what they were setting up earlier. And in fact, it's Bobby that steals the stage from Johnny and becomes disruptive instead. Yep. And it you know, takes the moment. And also earlier in Bobby's argument with his father, he says that he's not a, his father's ba- his father when he was prepping him for the funeral, saying you don't need to be afraid and all this sort of stuff. We'll be here with you. And Bobby says, I'm not afraid. In fact, I'm I'm. He says, I'm going to turn it upside down. So you got yeah. a sense that Bobby was ready to do something, and and Johnny gave him his moment. And so he, you know, he, he builds on that and starts yelling at everybody and say, you know, saying that they knew about it and that every, you know, you want to know who killed Laura? Everyone did. You did, you know, like, and she'd, she'd laugh at your prayers right now. Um, yeah. Save your prayers. She would have laughed at them anyway. It's such a great line. Yeah. And then, um, and then, so that, that prompts James to attack Bobby and they get into a slow-mo fight, um, yeah. <laughs> which you think that at this point, this is the worst funeral ever, but Oh no, it gets worse. And yeah. possibly what might have this might have every funeral I've gone to since then, I can't help but to think about this next moment. <laughs> I do too. I'm glad you said that. Because like when because here's the thing. When I watched this, I had never seen that particular apparatus for a coffin before. Right. Um it, I, I don't remember. I hadn't been to that many funerals at that point, I guess, but the ones I had been to 
I think the coffin was just already in the grave when we got there somehow. Yeah. Uh, and so later when I would see that same machine, I would you'd just get Leland Palmer in my head riding it up and down. It's, yeah, so the, the machine that you're speaking of is a, uh, you know, kind of the casket is sitting on a, uh, a couple of uh, strips of fabric that are attached to a motor that lowers the casket into the ground. And so while the fight is going on, Leland is so stricken with grief that he jumps on the casket and is crying, my baby, my baby, my baby. And the motor, the mechanism itself is not strong enough to hold the weight of the casket and Leland. So it starts going down and trying to pull the casket back up and down. So you get this. And then, of course, horrible Mrs. Palmer screams at Leland, which I thought, which which I did not. This is the first time I've caught the, the, the relevance of this line. But she says, don't ruin this, too. Yeah. Which is I, like, I noted that as well. Yeah, the which two. is like, what does that mean? Uh-huh. So, oh, yeah. And and that that even when you've watched the entire series, you still don't know exactly what she means, yeah. but it shows a level of awareness of her character that hadn't been revealed up until that point. Yeah. Also, notice we never see Laura's parents until after the fight starts. Right. When Cooper's doing his look around, we never we never even see them. Right. Um, yeah, which is, which is weird because we, yeah, we didn't, we only saw Leland at the house before the funeral. Yeah, that is weird. And they, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're standing away from the priest. They're standing alongside the casket. It's almost like a little misdirection yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Interesting. And then the last little funeral element is Dr. Jacoby, uh, visiting the grave alone with flowers. He's not at the funeral with everybody else. And I, I got to give, I, I mean, I love Dr. Jacoby just as a character and I love his flair for dress. And in this particular case, he's got a big hat and a cape, uh-huh. you know, and he's moving clandestinely through the night and, uh, reminding me of, you know, when he had the glove and he picked up the necklace. Yeah. You know? Um, and for some reason, Cooper's there waiting. Mm-hmm. I don't know, really know why Cooper was just hanging out in the graveyard, but uh, he's staking out Laura's uh, grave to see smart. if just this sort of thing happens. And it does. And uh, Jacoby explains that uh, that he's a bad person, that he's never he doesn't care people he treats until Laura. Laura made him care. So everyone's very upset. And this is the first time uh, on my first time through this that I took Jacoby off my list. Yeah, uh, I said, oh, you know what? Maybe he's pulling one over on Cooper, but honestly, I just don't think he's the one who did yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think he's got it in him. So Red herring. Yep. And so then finally, at the at the night of the funeral, um, Big Ed, Hawk, and Truman are all sitting at the diner, and, and they invite uh, Cooper to join them for a piece of pie. Uh, and oh, and you catch Shelly uh, making fun of Leland Palmer telling the story to two guys at the diner bar. Yeah, which I thought was really, really in poor taste. But Yeah, yeah. Shelly, what the hell? Shelly's not nice. But um, I thought was funny is that I finally picked up on this. Uh, as Cooper joins them, they, they're a conversation in, pros, in, in, in progress where Big Ed doesn't believe something Truman's saying, and they decide to bet the bill on it, uh, the, the dinner bill. Right. He down and orders a slice of pie from Norma, and Norma comes and serves the pie, and then Norma walks away, and Cooper turns to Big Ed and goes, how long have you been in love with Norma? And therefore, Ed has to pay the bill because he lost the bet because Cooper figured it out, which I was like, I love that they do that, that, he, that Cooper's seeing right through all of their little their little uh, triangles. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the uh, he's the Sherlock Holmes character, right? Nothing gets past his powers of observation. Uh, and the look Norma gives Ed is more like, why haven't you called me? Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, that totally gives it away, I guess. <laughs> very clever, very clever. But uh, so, yeah, the reason for the meeting is that Truman explains that Big Ed was at the was at the, the bar that night and got slipped the mickey by Jacques Renault and that he was undercover and Cooper of course says why were you undercover 
Well, uh, also, before we get into the to the reason for that, why is local police doing an international drug running investigation? Well, there's a lot of questions here with wouldn't, this. Wouldn't that really be the FBI yeah, or, or the DEA, DEA yeah, so, or yeah. Customs or ICE mm-hmm. or like something else besides <laughs> Twin Peaks? Truman, ex- yeah, Truman explains to Cooper that they that they suspect that drugs are coming in from Canada over the border, and I I thought Big Ed gives a good a good reason. So and he says that they they've been investigating it, and Big Ed's been helping. And Cooper says, "Well, Big Ed, I didn't know you were a deputy." And he goes, "I'm not, but you know, somebody bring you know selling drugs to teenagers, uh, it should be my business." And it was like, "Oh, yeah. these are good people. These are it's a good know. small town yeah. ethic, salt of the earth people." Uh, but then they go from a very reasonable, understandable defense to discussion of a secret society that fights an evil that's been in these woods, a darkness, a presence, uh, and and now now we're starting to get the tie into Bob and Mike. Yep. Uh, and we're like, oh, those those guys must be tied into that evil, that presence. Maybe it was the evil that killed Laura Palmer. And and the thing is, with Hawk being there, you get a sense of Native Americans, and and so like I feel like it gives a legitimacy to the idea of like, oh yeah, there's a dark spirit in the woods that we we fight for for years. You know, like it. it I I didn't question it when they say that there's a darkness that we're always fighting because yeah you yeah because yeah, who knows what goes on in those woods and 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 when they're not fighting the darkness, they're stopping cocaine. Um, but, <laughs> and then, and then, so they introduced Cooper to the concept of the book house boys yep. and, uh, and Cooper gets his boy like glee on again because it's a secret society. One, one would assume that the Cooper would have given the proper reaction if he'd seen the secret, uh, bookcase. Door. Right. Yeah. You'd think so. You'd think so. But, and then also, and why Cooper didn't pick up on the little hand signals, which as soon as they say the book house boys, they all do. And I realized I don't know the rules of the bookhouse boys, but there's no consistency in the hand signal because the hand signal is just taking your index finger and running it along from your forehead down the side of your face. But I prefer to think of it as an extraordinarily complex system based on your standing within the bookhouse boys society so this, uh, and this, the introduction uh, procedure that we just as outsiders can't possibly understand. So that explains why Big Ed and Hawk do it on the right side of their face and or on the left side of their face and Truman does yeah. it on the right side of Probably his face. Probably has to do with the year end of induction or okay. their level of mastery of the arcane arts. That's right. my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Truman or Truman's like a, is truly the sheriff and they are deputies. Yeah. So there's a rank He's like a 33rd level bookhouse boy is what I'm saying. (laughs) So they take Cooper to the actual bookhouse, which I guess is like a bar or a social club or something. Yeah, it's kind of like an old um, uh, mountain shack with a bar and a bunch of books on the shelf because they decided to call it bookhouse. It is the bookhouse. Um, And the coffee is free. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, there they have captured Bernard Renault, the the brother of the bar bartender Jacques Renault, and they captured him with an ounce of cocaine coming over from Canada. Now, Tom, I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a drug user. I never have been. I, I was straight edge for most of my life. Um, I, I feel like an ounce of cocaine is not a lot. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's the kind. I, I mean, it's it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> to get you in trouble, uh, you're going to get arrested if you have an ounce of cocaine on you. But also, you'll get arrested yeah. for an ounce of cocaine for possession and then taken to jail, <laughs> not hauled off 
to the Bookhouse Boys secret bungalow where they don't blindfold you and show you exactly what the inside of the headquarters of their secret society looks like. And, and gag you with a bandana and just keep you there. And, yeah, they and, gag you but not blindfold you. Right, but the gagging was probably smart because Bernard Renault has the worst French accent, I've worst Quebecois accent oh, I've ever heard. French. <laughs> oh, that's what that... I was thinking Louisiana, maybe. No, no, it was Quebecois. It was uh, yeah, French-Canadian. Yeah. Well, or it, wasn't it was just it was just comical um which it is even, was comical, which is even funnier because he tells them where they can find his brother jacques um which cooper then figures out why would you tell us where we could find him and we we cut to jacques strolling down the street and he's going to the bar to the roadhouse and he sees the a red light is on which means run so he runs to a payphone and he calls leo of all people and says uh, i need you to pick me up he doesn't have a french accent at all in that scene so <laughs> Uh, Jacques doesn't. No, he lost his accent years ago when he moved away from Louisiana. I mean, from uh, <laughs> Quebec. Uh, so there you go. Um, yeah. So Leo obviously getting more fingers pointed at him. Yeah. Uh, we're being we're definitely being led to suspect Leo in a big way but- by by the. By the bottle, by the way he treats Shelly, by the dirty, uh, the bloody rag, uh, the bloody shirt. And now he's involved with the drug running Renault's. And yeah, and and earlier in the episode, he uh, forgot to mention that Cooper and Truman did visit Leo, uh, uh, pay Leo a visit. And they answered my question from the last episode is that why was Leo even a suspect? And Truman said, Leo Johnson's the kind of guy you keep on every list until you can rule him out. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, and and also in that uh, they Cooper kind of asked Leo some questions and says, hey, hey you, you have a record, and uh, Leo says, yeah, and then Cooper rattles off all of his offenses, of which uh, Leo says, I did my time, but those offenses were like. <laughs> It was like drunk driving and ass- yeah, uh, yeah. an assault that Disorderly was charges were drunk. Like, I don't think Leo did any I time. Paid, I paid my <laughs> debt to society. <laughs> um, but yeah, so but we get the sense that Leo is involved in more sense. And then this is where the stories get intertwined because Cooper is investigating the murder of Laura Palmer, but the Bookhouse Boys are investigating the drugs. Mm-hmm. And are they all going to converge at some point? We're going to find yeah. out. So. Also, side note to the Leo story, that's when we learn that Shelley has obtained a gun. Shelly's got a gun. Shelly's got a gun. Or should we say Chekhov's got a gun? Or the the, the lesser known Aerosmith version of the song. Shelly's got a gun. Um, All right. Um, There's one more scene that we haven't talked about yet because it doesn't neatly fit into any of these storylines. Nope. It's the Great Northern Dance. That's what I call it. Because for some reason, everyone at the Great Northern is out there uh, dancing. And it starts as like, oh, it's just background. They just wanted to have something in the background while Cooper and Hawk were talking. Yeah. And um, and and we get a fantastic – I love the idea of Cooper and Hawk hanging out and having a beer. Yeah, right? Like it's the end of the well, night. Especially now that Cooper knows he's a tracker. Yeah, exactly. You know you, you know that before the scene came in, we got Cooper just rattling questions at Hawk going, hey, tell me about tracking. What do you do? Like, he's, yeah. It's annoying. It's all, uh, borders on racism. Yeah, to be possibly. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but then they get into a very deep discussion where Cooper asks Hawk if he thinks people have a soul. And you get a long kind of, uh, you know, a long kind of explanation from Hawk about – souls and you know laura's just a body in the ground and her soul's out there you know in the, in the wind and you get the you, you tales get, of dream souls that wander and yep so you get more that makes cooper think about his dream obviously exactly yeah and you get more sense of this it is more to this than what we know and all the while hawk is telling this while we see people dancing and we see leland in the middle of the dance floor by himself 
Um, and the music kind of goes back to that, you know, kind of swing bandy kind of thing. And he starts dancing by himself and then grabbing at anyone, begging them to dance with him and starts crying. And so then Hawk and Cooper get up and, and say, come on, Leland, let's take you home. And in a very sad moment of grief. Yeah, yeah. But now, granted or insanity, it's the yeah. it's a it's a good callback to the disturbing living room dancing yeah. uh, with the with the blood on, on the, the picture frame. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's it's showing the Leland madness. Um, why, why was he there though? Like funeral was today. Yeah. Think he'd be with family at the house. Think about it. Do you want to be home with that woman? No, I don't want to, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking about it from that perspective of like, yeah. And there's no way anyone would let me leave. Right. Especially if it was like, I'm just going to go up to the great Northern to the dance. You guys stay here and right. do the wake. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. It's a good point. Although I could see, I could understand him doing what he could to get out of it. Like, no, no, no he wants, doubt. He wants no to doubt. be amongst the people, but yeah, how he how he got Maybe, amongst the people, who knows? I mean, but, who am I to say that he isn't clever enough to pull that off? Right. As we will find out, he is very clever at hiding things. He is. He is. <laughs> All right. So that's you know that's this Emmy nominated episode. Uh, the fe- Laura has now been buried, presumably. Uh, yeah. Chock full. Chock yeah. full. This episode. Chock full, indeed. So, uh, all right, so time to note this with Diane. Uh, my, uh, not a lot to note of. A lot happened in this episode, but uh, my m- thing I wanted to note was in the very beginning when Cooper orders his uh, breakfast, uh, which, again, the legacy of Agent, Special Agent Dale Cooper ordering food in the show is just amazing. Every episode is another turn. Uh, he explains to Harry and Lucy the magic that happens when ham hits maple syrup, and I just have to say, testify, I agree. When, when yeah. you, you get a little syrup on your sausage or on your on your pork sausage or on a on your ham during breakfast on bacon, it's amazing. So, but I wish much. I could go to a diner and order the Cooper Great Northern and yeah. just get that breakfast. Like I wouldn't <laughs> have to explain. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've got a couple things to note. Uh, one is food related to Cooper, so I'll, I'll go with that one first. Uh, the, I, I just like I love all of Cooper's quotes around pie, and of course when he's sitting there with the book about to beat the bookhouse boys, yep. he says, "This must be where pies go when they die." Yep. Um, which is which is just another great line to have in your stockpile of compliments to pie makers. Uh, and then Audrey has a big old makeover in this episode. When we first see her at the beginning, her hair's all slicked back and she looks like ten years older. Yep. Well she she definitely goes she definitely goes for a flapper esque nineteen twenties yeah. look for the funeral, you know, wearing pants and, and you know, kind of, you know, that's her grief outfit. Um, but, you know, they're they're building up the Audrey Cooper romance dynamic, and so it makes sense that they want to make her look as good as possible, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. She's I, trying to look more adult, maybe, for Cooper or something. Yeah, watching this at, at 13 or 14 and seeing Sherilyn Fenn week in, week out, was, it, was, it was at times more than my teenage brain could handle. So. It was notable, it is was what very, you're saying. It was very notable, indeed. <laughs> so, All right, so that's going to wrap it up for uh, this episode of Damn Fine Podcast. Uh, Wait, are we halfway through first season now? I think we are. Yeah, because there's only eight episodes. Yeah, we are. Wow, it goes quickly. It was a, uh, the spring show. They were all in April. I still yeah. can't Yeah, think about that. That episode's in 1990 we're running in may that's that i mean in into june like that's crazy yeah uh, just so different than how tv works now um all right well if you've got any questions for our town hall segment you can um you can write us in at feedback at damnfinepodcast.com and of course you can comment on this episode at damnfinepodcast.com uh, we want to hear what you think of this episode and your theories and that sort of thing um so until next time uh i'm ron i'm tom i'm tom